I competed on the Free Skiing Tour because I thought that it would be a good way to kind of force myself to push my skiing so that I could ski, frankly, anywhere in the world that I wanted to. And, and it definitely helped. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Ski mountaineer Kit Delorier skied off the summit of Mount Everest into history. Delorier is the first person to ski from the highest peak on every continent, the so-called Seven Summits. Her 2006 descent of Everest capped a string of firsts, including being the first woman to ski Mount Vinson in Antarctica, Mount Aspiring in New Zealand, and the Grand Teton in Wyoming. National Geographic named Delorier its 2015 Adventurer of the Year. She was elected to the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame in 2019 and is being formally inducted into the hall this week. Delorier is the mother of two children, with her husband Rob Delorier, whose family runs the Bolton Valley Ski Area in Vermont. Kit is the author of a memoir, Higher Love, Skiing the Seven Summits, which was reissued last year. She is a member of the North Face Global Athlete Team, on the board of the Alaska Wilderness League, and on the riders team of the climate action group Protect Our Winters. I spoke with her from her home in Jackson, Wyoming. Kit Delorier, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me. I want to get some of your personal background before we get into the accomplishments um, that you've had as an athlete and a mountaineer. Um, you grew up in Massachusetts, attended college in Arizona, and then went on to win free skiing championships, though you never ski raced before. So explain that uh, trajectory. It's not a predictable one. <laughs> it's not. And um, good job on consolidating that time frame into three <laughs> phrases. Uh, there's obviously a bit more. I grew up partly in Massachusetts, and that's where I'd say my parents live um and yet that was only about four years in massachusetts then we lived on the north shore of long island then we moved out to arizona so i went to u of a um as a with an academic uh, scholarship in state and yet i was in i was a 15 years old as a sophomore in high school the first time i went um skiing in telluride colorado and it super excited me. And I made a personal decision at that moment that that's where I would move the moment I graduated from college. It sounds crazy looking back on it that I would plan that far ahead. Um, but I did. And, that, and that's what happened. Um, it was just the year before I was 14, the first time I actually ever went downhill skiing, alpine skiing. And that was at a small resort in northeastern Arizona called Sunrise. And the other piece in between that fills in people's question marks, I'm sure that they have right now, is that growing up uh, in rural southeastern Massachusetts and then North Shore of Long Island, um, we just didn't have the economic background to be able to travel to ski. And so it wasn't an option. And what was an option for me, though, was out was really just walking around the woods and farmer's fields on Nordic skis. So when I say I grew up Nordic skiing, I did. It was also nothing that people would think of as um, organized Nordic skiing. It was really just walking around on farmer's fields on skis that were either too long or too short because I'm a middle kid. But it was a place of great freedom for me. And it was um, something that I just gravitated towards. And I think it instilled for me a love of being outside in the winter and moving around on my own terms. And I think it informs still a piece of how I like to ski. Don't get me wrong. I love to rip powder turns on an early tram here at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. But if it's not really snowing here much, or even when it is, I just as much love or prefer backcountry skiing. And I don't mind walking an hour or two across the flats to get to my objective either. So I think it all comes from there. So yeah, I was 14 the first time I got an opportunity to go downhill skiing, 15 the first time that I went to Telluride and set my sights on that mountain. And that's where I moved the day I graduated from college. Were you a competitive skier at any time prior to when you became one in your late 20s, early 30s? No, I was not. I never had an opportunity to do it. 
so, um, well, and frankly, I didn't have the skill set until I went out and did it when I was in my early 30s. Are you, I mean, do you uh, yeah, think of yourself as a competitive person? Because reading your story of the conquest of these mountains, there's a there's an incredible drive that runs through oh, these yeah. stories. Well, I'm an incredibly driven person. And sure, yes, <laughs> yes, my friends, my family, of course, I'm competitive. Um, I will add that I've always been an athlete. And I've been an athlete um, in non non-skiing sports and traditional sports. And I was, um, an elite athlete at some, you know, I went to state for cross country in Arizona and literally the list includes cross country track, volleyball, swimming, tennis, badminton. I mean, you name it. Like I did. And I soccer, soccer was really big for me as a kid. Softball was really big, you know, captain of most of those teams. So I was, I've always been an athlete, but again, I just was never exposed. I never had the opportunity. And I think that's important. You know, in this moment, there's a lot of talk and thankfully also a lot of action around offering opportunities to people because um, yes, I am, you know, a, a middle-class white woman, but I did not have an opportunity to go skiing when I was a kid. So I think it's really cool that those are out there. And my story is also a lot about opportunities that have been given to me. And I'm all about, um, I spend, you know, a chunk of my time and effort helping manifest those for other people too, because it's a lot about opportunities. And so I just didn't have that opportunity when I was young. Um, my family finally was, I'll just say like in a socioeconomic bracket, barely by the time I was 14 to offer it to me. But at that time, right, and I am from the East Coast, so I can say this, it was like dungarees. Like I was skiing in jeans and, you know, borrowed gear and it was, and that's the way it was. And so it took me a long time to become a skier at the level where I could imagine competing. You know, my goals were more like, you know, how do I get down this run or that run? And then at a certain point it was, and I moved to Telluride, I saw people that were able to ski all the time. And then I, I had to figure out how to make a living. So I thought, okay, well, uh, maybe I'll become a ski patroller, right? But that took me several years of focusing on that goal to be have a skill set where I had a place to even try out for something like that. Um, and then, you know, just keeps going, right? Then I moved to Jackson and I look up at the mountains here and I saw this beautiful line on the Grand Teton. And I said to Rob, my husband, Rob, I was like, what is that? Cause it just drew me aesthetically. And he said, Oh, that's the grand. And I said, I want to ski that. And he looked at me, he's like, are you, are you kidding? Like, that's a big deal, you know? And, and I was actually an expert rock climber at the time. And so like, you know, the high Alpine environments don't intimidate me. Um, but I looked at that and I was like, wow, well, that's what I'm going to do. And it took me the next three years of focus. You know, I don't, not somebody who goes out and hires a guide to do something. It took me three years to work up my skill set to where Rob and I could go do that, you know, independently, soloing, solo it. And I've, you know, leave it and I've soloed it since. And I've climbed and skied it 13 times, um, twice climbed it without a rope and then skied it. And I never use a rope on skiing it. But anyway, my, that's my point is like, I set these goals and then I go after them. And so there was just a moment, it, getting better and better at skiing was always one of them. Uh, and competing on the free ride tour was a piece of that, right? Because for me, I'm more drawn to being uh, in the big mountains and, you know, ski mountaineering and backcountry skiing. And so, um, but I'm also just like to challenge myself. And so I competed on the free skiing tour because I thought that it would be a good way to kind of force myself to push my skiing so that I could ski, frankly, anywhere in the world that I wanted to. And, and it definitely helped. Talk about the challenge of being a woman in a world that has, or in activities that have been dominated by men, whether it's ski patrol, there are, you know, only a small number of pro patrollers around the country, especially in the West, and then the worlds of climbing and ski mountaineering uh, are heavily dominated by men, and they're the ones who are in the magazines and such. So what did you encounter as a challenge in that way as a woman? Um, I encountered what you just described in that I was often the 
I'm often the only woman out there that's changing rapidly these days. So maybe at some points I was often the only woman out there. But the most important thing I'd like to share in answer to that question is this concept that I think many people use their mindset to either consciously or unconsciously fixate on possibility or limitations. And if you think about gender or you think about maybe it's somebody operating, you know, living their life with, you know, one leg or one arm or reduced vision, you're thinking about limitations and that's only going to get you so far. So there's no reason for me to be out there like thinking about like, oh, a woman hasn't done this before. Or, you know, instead it's, um, I just think about, is it possible? And I think an even bigger piece on that or just as big about mindset of possibilities is this idea that I feel very strongly that the mountains are genderless. The mountains don't care. They also don't care about your skill set or your training, right? I mean, we know that when we see experts you know, fall down um, out there doing what they're purportedly best at. It happens. The mountains don't care. They do not care how tall you are, how old you are, what color you are, what gender you are. And that's a beautiful thing that I find about the mountains is that I can just be me. And it really doesn't matter. So I don't look at the, I don't look at my teammates with any of those lenses and I don't look at the mountains with those lenses. And I think coming from that perspective helps me to also think about potential a bit more than limitations. When you started in that world though, probably you were greeted with skepticism. Some doors did not open easily. And I wonder what pushed you to keep going and banging on those doors and challenging that skepticism? Well, what pushed me is my love for what I'm doing and this feeling that this is my place. And yes, it's hard to open doors. Maybe it's harder for women than men. I don't know. And like I've said, I'm grateful things are changing to become less gender specific and more personal skill set specific, but um, it was really just, it's really goes back to my mindset of what do I want? What do I want for me? And so it was hard. I can remember after I won the free skiing world tour the first time, which was my first season on the free ski tour. And I didn't even do any qualifiers. I just kind of got a wild card to get in there and then started landing on the podium and won the overall title that first year. I still didn't have a ski sponsor. And I was asking. And I still didn't have a spot on the North Face team. And I'd asked for five years. And keep updating my resume, reach back out. Um, it, it didn't happen after for a lot of work. And in that moment, after that first year, it was really, that was a big question mark for me of like, why, you know, why am I doing this? And for me, I think a part of it was the fact that at that point I was 34, yes, female, but 34 and married. And maybe there is a difference right there, right? Maybe if I was 34 and male and married, it wouldn't have mattered. But in that moment, being 34 female married is like decidedly was decidedly unappealing. You know, I didn't have any spots in ski films opening up for me, like most other uh, champions of the world free skiing tour. Um, but in the end, I decided to do it the second year, mostly for a personal reason. And the personal reason was that I won. I wondered who I wondered if I was being true to myself by not competing a second year because I was actually fearful of going out with a loss, right? If we're going to win, isn't it nice to go out on top? Mm -hmm. Here I am holding the championship. Now I have a chance. I can go out on top and I can go back to my ski mountaineering career that I was, you know, really, whether it was a career, you know, <laughs> it wasn't funded or anything, but it was my passion, my, my own personal drive. Um, go back to that 
and be on top or do it a second time simply because I recognized in my own mind that I didn't want to go out not on top. And I thought that that was such a pathetic reason. It did not resonate for me with my morals and values that I I needed to go do it again and prove to myself that I could do it again. So it wasn't about for anybody else, um, but it that was the point that second year when I did finally get a spot on the North Face team and did finally start to get some corporate support for what I was doing. Hmm. So it finally came and it finally came together, but that was a low point. So I hear what you're saying, but for the most part, I just... I don't, uh, you know, if doors knock, I mean, I ask any author, you're an author yourself, how many doors shut before one opens? And there's <laughs> more brilliant stories out there than mine or yours around that, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, and in anybody's world, uh, right. many doors are closed until you shove on them. Um, so talk about where the idea for skiing the summits, the seven summits came from and and sounds like it's sort of related you were exiting the world of free skiing competition which you had um tremendous success but also some frustrations in terms of recognition and such um so where did skiing the seven summits come from well i was actually competing that second year on the world free skiing tour and i was at snowbird utah and that stop was the u.s free skiing nationals which was also a point series stop on the world tour. And I won that event. And at the awards, Mr. Dick Bass, rest in peace, was there handing out awards. He was the owner of Snowbird Ski Resort and the first person to climb the seven summits. Rob and I ended up having dinner with him and his son that night um, at, at the Airy sushi lounge and the cliff lodge his building his restaurant and um listened to him wax poetically late into the night about all his dreams in life and the next morning when we checked out of his hotel there was a signed copy of his book the seven summits waiting for me and i just read it like over the next month six weeks or something it traveled with me um, I read it and read it and read it. And when I, but when I first started reading it, I've always been visual and, and a reader and a storyteller and appreciative of those qualities of other people. And, you know, uh, just challenged myself, appreciated Dick's perspective. And I was reading it and I thought to myself, I really envisioned to myself that in his descriptions, those mountains seemed skiable. And he actually calls himself in the book, a high altitude trekker. And I thought, well, (laughs) you know, and I already had some high altitude experiences under my belt. Um, I had been high up um, in the Himalayas on a climbing trip in Sikkim, India, and also been, um, yeah, to the highest point in um, Siberia, Mount Beluka on the border of China, Mongolia, and Kazakhstan on a ski trip and had already just been to Mount Aspiring, done a first female ski descent there with Rob. And I had um, actually climbed and skied Denali with Rob that year before in 2004. So this was um, 2005 when I got a copy of his book. And so I just thought, wow, I already have one of those done. And, and these all seem skiable. So that's where the idea came from. And uh, we should probably also mention that the Rob you're referring to is Rob Delorier, who's part of the Delorier family that founded Bolton Valley and still runs Bolton Valley. Your sister-in-law, Lindsay, uh, is now the, uh, uh, I guess, CEO of it. That's um, right. And you met Rob on that climbing trip to Siberia, I believe. That's he was right. The cameraman. That's right. And he said, and I was um, more of a rock climber than a skier then. I was a telemark skier. And he was a cinematographer on the trip. So, um, yeah, one night sitting outside the snow cave, he asked me if I would teach him how to climb because he was not a rock climber. And I said, yes, if you'll teach me how to ski the way you can ski. So (laughs) that was kind of our partnership right there. And we, yeah, so we met in March of 99 
and we married in October of 2000. So you had, um, which was the first of the seven summits that you, uh, it was Denali was, you it had was already Denali. skied Denali. And it was a spring vacation for Rob and I, honestly. We spent most of the month of May on Denali. And the reason we did May was because it was the best time of year for him to take a break from um, his real estate profession here in Jackson, Wyoming. And um, I would suggest anybody wants to ski it. And there's plenty of info out there these days. There wasn't as much then, but go in June, not May. It's too cold to precipitate. It was just blue ice up there. It was really tough. And um, anyway, we, yeah, we did that just frankly as vacation, because remember, you know, I just said we met on a ski expedition in Siberia and we had just been to Mount Aspiring in New Zealand the year before. And so this was Rob's choice was to go to Denali. We kind of would take turns choosing objectives like that. Talk about um, some of the extreme environments where this journey has led you. And I, there's probably none more extreme than Antarctica and climbing and skiing Mount Vincent, the highest point in Antarctica. What was that like? Antarctica, it was so cold. It was actually fabulous training to do that ahead of Everest because I had to learn a lot in two weeks of pretty much never taking my down suit off. <laughs> Just felt like I was wearing a regular pair of, you know, soft shell pants and a down jacket ski touring. Uh, it was really cold, like to the level where, you know, you use a pee bottle in a tent at night and put that pee bottle in your foam insulator and it still freezes solid. Mm. So cold that you can't be gone from your camp uh, more than a couple hours usually. So your camps are close together. It was really, really cold. And we were the first ones how, to kind cold, of open how, the... How cold is cold? Well, I can tell you that at our high camp, which was about 13,000 feet, because the summit's just a little over 16, we were trapped there for five days in a storm with no way to measure temperatures. But they later told us that 7,000 feet below, so at 6,000 feet, during that storm, the temperatures were minus 35 and the winds were 70. So I don't know. And minus I don't like to use the same Celsius hyperbole. Or so, yeah, it's the same. So I'll say maybe it's minus was minus 45 or something. It was tough. And the winds were blowing. Um, yeah. And it warmed up a little bit when the storm passed when we went for the summit, which just meant that, you know, we could unzip the top of our down jackets like like a classic quarter zip sweater, <laughs> but um, it was still cold and it was really remote. We were the first ones to, you know, I'll just say open that camp for the season. So we were the first team to climb it and there were others, other expeditions happening at the same time. But like I just said, you don't go very far in between camps. And we actually did a double carry to get to high camp early. So meaning we carried like 90 pounds or more in one pack load um, up the head wall there on the Branscombe Glacier so that we could get up there in one carry and get ahead of them. Um, but that also meant that we were the only ones trapped up there for the storm. So it was very, a lot of these times when I go these places, like to go and ski is, um, it oftentimes means it's a bit of a wilderness experience compared to some of the stories and visuals that we can all kind of pull from things like Everest, right? On Everest, I was, we were there in the post-monsoon season. So we were high on the mountain in September and October. We summited in the middle of October and we were the only people on the mountain. What is it like to ski in Antarctica at minus 40 degrees? What was that skiing like? <laughs> Anytime I go to any one of these places, the snow is usually the worst that you can imagine <laughs> and also incredibly variable. It changes rapidly. And as most of us are aware, wind affects snow at a greater extent. It certainly can transport it at a greater extent than it can rate than it can fall out of the sky. So wind is a big, um, has a big effect on the snow. And so it's wind rippled hard sastrugi in basically a super cold alpine desert environment. So 
It's not smooth, no matter where you are. If it is smooth, watch out because it's probably just bulletproof ice, but more likely it's ice with wind rippled, stiff, sastrugi waves sticking up out of it. So no powder skiing in Antarctica for you. There were a couple turns on the glacier down lower that were pretty good. So yeah, there's moments, there's moments where it's good. But the view is always great, and I'm not just in it for the skiing, you know. You know, remember back to my like childhood story about walking around in winter. It's a beautiful thing, and I like skiing in all forms. Let's talk about the the peak you were probably most famous for, and that is skiing Mount Everest. So first of all, um, before we get to going down Mount Everest, talk about going up Mount Everest, which is a lot of suffering involved in climbing that mountain. What was it for you? <laughs> Interesting choice of word. Um, suffering. We have a saying in this community that mountaineering is the art of suffering. And the sooner you, you decide you like it, the better you'll be at it. Um, and that was something that I'm sure I heard like 25, 30 years ago at this point. And it was a little insight into the mindset choice of suffering. And um, I'll say Everest was a very large insight into it because I don't look back on it as suffering at all. Um, it was very deep immersion experience. It was in, at some points, I'll say mentally tumultuous but it, that wasn't about the suffering. That was about me deciding or decide or not deciding to allow the potential for like the stress to be that this was the last of my seven summits project. Um, and it, obviously it's the mountain with like the greatest, you know, chance of death, quite frankly, the least likelihood of success, the most expensive, the most time consuming, all these. And so when I let those thoughts come into my mind, it was very challenging. It was very difficult. You know, it had the potential to be consuming and, and dark and anxiety provoking. Yet being in that community and that culture um, was very uplifting and offered me many opportunities to actually put into practice to cultivate a mindset that didn't focus on those things that focused in the moment. Right. And when I was, and so I would do that because it was pretty easy to look at the options and be like, wow, this one, frankly, sounds miserable. And this one I can enjoy where I am and the people I'm with and I'll keep trying hard, but it, my happiness does not rest upon the success. My happiness rests in this, in every moment that I choose. And so it was like that. And I'm super grateful for that entire experience. Whenever I talk about it, I have to share that piece of it because it's a big piece of who I am. And that's also how I wrote the book, I feel, or at least that was my intention that this was not like camp two and this was camp three. And, you know, this is what we did and that's in there. But it was this mental journey that was so important to me that is such a big takeaway that I also credit with a big with a bit of, I give it a lot of credit for our success. So it was this idea of like detachment from the outcome. It was hard though, right? It was, we were seven weeks at or above our 17,000 foot base camp. Hmm. We were 49 days on the mountain. That doesn't include 10 days to trek in there, um, flying around the world. We were, we were 10 weeks door to door and I was the only woman on the trip. And, um, yeah, it was hard. And we had a storm that came in after we had acclimatized to the point where we could then sleep at camp one or even camp. No, we hadn't, we had walked to camp two by then, but we hadn't established camp two, a big storm. Maybe there were some supplies there and our Sherpa team was starting to put some ropes up on the Lotse face. And the storm came through that just obliterated everything. All the ropes were gone, tents were buried poles were bent and broken. Um, people were going home on neighboring peaks, not people that we saw, but we were getting radio reports because again, we were alone out there on the mountain. Um, 
like on neighboring Pumori and Cho'oyu teams were calling it, pulling off for the seasons. It was a big storm. Mm. And we just kind of doubled down and we radioed to Kathmandu for more ropes for our fixed lines and had porters run them up and started over again and kept going. And that's, that's right there where life in the mountains translates to pretty much any other objective we're all looking for. You know, it's your, it's your mindset and your commitment and, you know, your deep love and camaraderie and compassion for your teammates and all the people that helped get you there. It was, it was like that, but man, it was cold. It was hard. And it was miserable. And there were times when we'd get up to a high camp and my, my MO, as soon as we got to a new elevation, first thing I did after we set up the tent and started the stove to melt snow for water, right? Cause it takes like four hours to melt enough snow for water for two people on a camp stove hmm. um, to melt enough water for a day, I should say. Um, my thing was just to eat, 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 eat as soon as I could at a higher elevation before the nausea would set in of, you know, that your body's going through with acclimatizing to a new altitude. And I remember poignantly doing that uh, on camp three, it was an acclimatization climb. So, you know, meaning we went up and down and then another time we go up, sleep high to acclimatize and come back down. <laughs> so it was like that. So those times were, were full of, you know, difficult moments. I'll just avoid the word suffering again, but they were full of some difficult moments. And, um, but I would get there and my thing was like, I would keep a chocolate bar and a tube of just beautiful peanut butter, like not whatever Skippy I could buy over there, but what I had brought carefully curated from home, a squeeze tube and I would keep it inside my jacket or my down suit and I would sit in that tent. And as I'm tending the stove, I would squeeze as much peanut butter onto as much of the chocolate bar as I could handle and ideally eat the entire thing because it was all about calories. How do you keep the summit fever, the desire to continue to complete that seven summits quest from leading you into making bad decisions that you just want it so bad that you push on through a storm or through whatever that perhaps should be your sign to turn back? Um, I think I just... I, there's many facets to that answer. Um, one of them is something I just, I think I earlier touched on. I said this concept of detachment from the outcome. It does sound a bit in contrast to like, you know, this kind of driven goal setting, personal challenge piece of myself. Yet I'm also highly aware, like in the mindset piece I was talking about that if you get too focused on those things, then you're not in a place, you're not in a peaceful, happy, calm place. So this concept of detachment from the outcome, I actually remember learning it or being listening to it being spoken of in a yoga class when I was, um, I definitely in, have incorporated yoga in my life to different degrees at different times. But in this yoga class, this detachment from the outcome, the concept was like, look, you, you may never be able to sit in that position or do this, you know, posture just perfectly and detach yourself from that. Just be where you are right now. And it's not about the outcome. It's about who you are in the process. And so I always try to follow that. None of us are perfect. But I also, um, in detaching from the outcome, it doesn't at all mean that you're not still focused and working hard, but you're not consumed by the outcome. You can never be consumed by the summit. You can never be consumed by, you know, reaching this certain um, elusive uh, deposit number in your bank account, right? Or number of children or number of books you've written or nice enough car, you know, you get, this outcome is like elusive and is not the fulfilling thing. And I think the sooner that we realize that, then the more opportunity we have to have success in life. And so it's like that. And I've seen a ton of people in the mountains die by living the way that, you know, you just said, and it's, that's, you know, I've been at this for a long time. And it's obviously not my 
intent. So detachment Why? from the outcome while per, while persevering. How's that? I think a lot of people listening to your story um, imagine how afraid they'd be. And fear, of course, is a big part of the game. Whether it was in the free skiing competitions, willing yourself to jump things that were scary, or on Everest, where the odds can very often tip quickly against you. How do you deal with fear? I typically deal with fear by, I think the first filter is to recognize if it's serving me or not. I do believe that there are certain moments of fear in our life that are put there for us to recognize that, hey, there's a red flag out there, right? And, and you gotta be aware of something. Um, it re that requires your own mental mindfulness training. And when you have that level of fear, by all means, listen to it because it's there to protect you. That's an, it's an ancient emotion in that way. However, I also believe that perhaps especially in recent times, we live our lives governed by fear. And it is important to distinguish these two types of fear. And this other type of fear is like that that's paralyzing and not serving. So one is serving and this other one is not serving. And if you can realize that it's not serving, like I'm standing on the top of a little jump. I remember after my first daughter was born and I was going back to skiing and it was something that was just totally normal, just like a little pop up, something small and a beautiful powder day in the side country. And I stopped and I thought, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, I have like a two month old at home and maybe I shouldn't be doing this anymore. And I just realized that now for some people you could say, okay, that's the, that's the important piece of fear I should be listening to. But because I had the skill set and the love for doing it and I wanted to be doing it and that I could recognize that in that moment, just for this example, for the sake of storytelling, that in that moment that that was a fear that I didn't need to heed. But then what did I need to do with it, right? I look at fear like this teaching that was handed to me by a really important um, Tibetan Buddhist master at one point. And it's this concept of fear, looking at it like any emotion that you would rather not have. Um, and like I said, sometimes fear is important, but if it's one that you'd rather not have, look at it like it's a thief, okay? Would you rather see that thief, if that thief is coming into your house, would you rather see that thief at the top of your driveway, at your front door, inside the front door, at the entry to your bedroom, or hovering over your nightstand, stealing your grandmother's diamond earrings, right? You'd like to see it the farthest away that you can, because then you have the most opportunity to do something with it. So that's how I look at the fear that, and it requires a lot of training, but that's how I look at the fear that is um, the fear that doesn't serve me. I try and see it from far away, and then I have more opportunity to push it away and replace it with the thought pattern that I'd like to replace it with. So we've digressed from you on the side of the world's highest mountain, and now we're back on the summit. Uh, first of all, talk about what it's like to stand on top of the world. Oh my gosh, it is so full of emotion. It's something that we never, you can never accept or expect, I should say, that it will happen. It's literally, you know, one foot in front of the other and all sorts of things, you know, can go sideways and, and did and do. But we got up there. And I remember literally being overcome with emotion and I was crying and just a little bit of like, just feeling like crying from my heart center, not necessarily tears coming down my face, but just feeling a lot of emotion and gratitude. And that gratitude was like in a flash instant for everybody and everything that came together to help make it possible. And then I wasn't able to stay there very long because it is time to like buckle the boots and step into the bindings. But I do remember that very, very clearly. 
talk about. And it was also very clear on one side of the mountain and very cloudy on the other. It was crazy. It was like this line was drawn in the sky and you could see forever, right? It's, I mean, it's hard to explain, but as we were on like the Hillary step, it's literally 8,000 vertical feet down into the, onto the Nepal side and into the Western Coombe and over 9,000 vertical feet down the other side into the Kangsheng face. It is enormous. How did you talk yourself into the first turn? Oh, I didn't. It was just my plan. In fact, yeah, no, it was just my plan. Um, but it was very like wind rippled Sastrugi and Rob definitely made it look better than I did. <laughs> what was... It was a side slip, progressive side slip off the top for sure. And can you ski right off the summit or isn't it rocky on the summit? Both, but we skied right off the summit. Mm-hmm. You describe in that descent extended stretches of 50 degree blue ice. And for yes. listeners who don't know what that means, 50 degrees looks vertical to most skiers. They describe it as 90 degrees, but you know it as 50 degrees. So uh, back to that fear question, how does how do you talk yourself into dropping into steep blue ice with severe consequences? Well, I am very well trained for it. Um, I don't, I, I'm not going to pretend that I had been on a slope exactly like that, or certainly as sustained and long as that, right? It was over 5,000 vertical feet uninterrupted. So, you know, there's no tree to take a break on or rock even. Um, there's no letting up of the angle. In fact, it only steepens. But that's partly how you can make it happen, right? You start off the top and you're like, oh, this isn't too bad. And then it gets steeper and steeper and steeper, which of course was no surprise. We'd been staring at it for over a month. Um, but um, how do you talk yourself into it? Well, to be totally honest, you you have to have, again, there's this crazy juxtaposition that I realize I'm, I'm continuously like weaving in as a theme today, but it's all true. It's um, a mixture of, complete commitment, complete confidence in yourself and your teammates, like to the degree we didn't have a rope with us. Like there was no rescue happening up there. Um, so complete commitment, complete confidence, and also that crazy detachment, right? I will never forget saying goodbye to the Sherpas and Dave Hahn and our friend Bryce Brown who were still at camp four and planning on starting their walk down shortly after. When we said goodbye to them, I saw this look in their eyes that was foreign. And then I understood it for what it was and that we, they thought that we may never see them again. It's of course our choice not to go there. And so we really didn't, but I saw it and I recognized it because ever since I've been going on big expeditions, to be totally honest, there's always that, you always have that piece. You know, you, you say goodbye to your friends and family and you say it lightheartedly and you say it deeply and lovingly. And you also don't say the thing that is always underneath is that you may not come back. But we all know that that's the case at any moment. It could be, you could be driving to work, right? You have an accident. You know, somebody could have a heart attack. Somebody could have an avalanche. You, you just never know, but it is that thing when you say goodbye. And so it was commitment, confidence, and, and again, that detachment. We were doing it, but what we were it, ready for it. What is it like to do this with your husband, Rob, with how much you care for one another and knowing that you're doing something where you're not sure how it's going to turn out for the other person. Yeah, that, that's a fair question. And it's good that we started this off by acknowledging that we met on a ski expedition to Siberia and then we you know, went to Mount Aspiring and then we went to Denali. It could have happened in any of those places too. Um, and that this is something, a, a love that we share uh, for being in the mountains and and a skill set, frankly, that we share. 
And so it just becomes even more um, just like you're doing this with another one of your best friends. It's just, it's easier in some ways. It's easier to, you know, share when you're having a hard day and you might want somebody else to care, take five or 10 pounds off your pack. It's easier to show up and help the other person when they're having that. Um, and, you know, I think that we just both knew that going into this, I know we both knew because we'd already experienced it, that we might not both come back. Both of us might not come back. Only one of us might. And the thing that I remember crossing my mind when he um, was having difficulties on the Hillary step was more like, how do I explain this to his mother? Because it's the thing that's harder to deal with is understanding, coming to some terms with a severe loss like that, if you're not the one who's also made that pact. You are the mother of two children now? Yes. How has being a mom changed your approach to what you do and to the it world? It makes me a lot busier, and so I get to do a lot less of it. <laughs> um, but I still love to do it. And I think what one of the ways that it may have changed is really just like elevated my need to be checked in on that mindful level I was saying with myself about how much do I really want something and how much does it really resonate? And if that answer is at a high degree, then I still go do it. You know, I, I just, when I have solo climbed and skied the grand, it's been, you know, a handful of times in the last six, eight years since I've been a mom. And so I'm like, I'm doing less and less of that um, but then after one of them, I took off the very next week and went and solo climbed and skied Gannett Peak, the highest in Wyoming, on a um, pretty fast three-day mission for covering 35 miles before getting to the summit. And it was fairly exposed and dangerous. And um, But, you know, so I still do these things. I still, I'm going up to Alaska these days and, you know, at least every other year doing a big expedition up there. But it has to just resonate with me and I have to be um, perhaps just more diligent about um, choosing my objectives. Yeah. What are you proudest of, of the many accomplishments that you have now notched in your life? Hmm. Perhaps becoming selfless enough to have children. <laughs> I had somebody tell me that once I was too selfish to have children and I took offense to that. And then over the years I was like, Oh, yeah, that was probably true because I, and, and what's wrong with that, right. To be, to have, uh, to make your, put yourself at a high degree of importance. Um, and then selfless would perhaps being like not recognizing your own self as having importance. So we're always striving to be somewhere in that range. Um, but yeah, that was, that was really important. And I think that's just one piece of it, but it's who these children have become. They're the kind of people who now like you take them out on a ski tour somewhere in the mountains and they will say such wonderful things like, I just want to live here. I want to stay here forever. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And that really lights up my soul because I really you know, I, they can do their own thing. I never encourage them to do anything. I support them, um, except perhaps turn off their devices and get outside from time to time. But I support them. And um, I just always want them to know that the outside, that the natural world is their home. And I feel like kind of uh, on an ancestral level, that's true for all of us, yet a lot of us have lost it. Um, if you're talking specifically about these accomplishments for which I'm being inducted into the Ski Hall of Fame, because in that case, most of us, if it was becoming a parent, most of us would get there. <laughs> um, ah, gosh, I'd say just completing it, you know, probably Everest because how hard and long it was. And it was the last one and it was like probably the greatest mental learning, but um, yeah the whole sticking it through. You start and end Higher Love, your book, talking about wolves. What did you learn from wolves? 
I learned a number of things. The first one that I want to share is that to be true to yourself, because for a wolf, there's no other way to be. The second piece to that is if you're going to change your mind about what you want to do or how you want to be true to yourself, it can only be because somebody's asked you with great love and interest for you, for your better, betterment. And then you still need to care, carefully consider. <laughs> so be true to yourself is a really big one. Another one is to um, be friends with people of all shapes and sizes and walks of life. My wolf had the most amazing partnerships with other canines that ranged from small, honey-colored, short-haired mutts to large Malamute huskies and everything in between and went on major adventures with them. And the love was so apparent. And it was so cool to see that because you'd look at him and think, wow, this is a real wolf. And then he's off buddying up with whomever he's buddying up with. It's really cute. So yeah, I'd say those are two big things. And, you know, and go out there and listen to the trees because they talk and they tell deep stories and being at a, at a wolf's pace in the world was one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. Well, Kit Delorier, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. I've had a good time. I appreciate it. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.